Good morning. Just out of curiosity, how many of you, show of hands, have heard of Allie Moore, Allie Halverson's miraculous healing story? Just a quick show of hands. Cool. <laughs> this will be fun. Not many of you. Um, we talk about Ebenezer's a lot in this church, and Tim has to say often, has to explain what Ebenezer's are. Uh, when we sing about them in worship. And basically what they were in the Old Testament is they were monuments, markers that the nation Israel set up uh, in, in the land when God delivered them victoriously from enemies or did something great. And they would set up a marker so that when they came across it again, they would, they would remember, look what God did. Look, look how far he brought us. And so it would be a reason for praise. And it would be something that they could say, okay, whatever's going on now, look what he did in the past. Maybe he can do it. He can do it again. Let's ask him to do it again. Let's trust that he will. And what I want to do today, uh, just in light of the 24-hour prayer event that's coming up uh, this week, is share a story. I hope it encourages you that God is alive and active, and he answers prayer all over the world. He does in this body, this body of believers as well. He has, and uh, he is, and he will uh, for, his, for his glory. Allie Halverson, this, is, this all happens in the spring of 2001. Uh, myself and uh, Norm Meyer, I, th- I thought I saw Neil here today earlier too. I don't know if he's going to be in the second service. But we were, Allie was one of the first LDI interns here at Hope. This was uh, back in the first year of it. And Norm and I and Neil were part of that crew as well. Allie was, I think, about 21 years old. And uh, just give me the quick story here, by the way, too. But she was, had a, a lump on her thyroid. And uh, she went and heard 99% of the time these are benign, nothing to worry about. She went in to get it checked out. And uh, turns out that she was the 1%. It, it was malignant, and uh, she, had, she had thyroid cancer. Fairly serious, and so they were going to go in and, and take it out. God led us to, but just God led us to pray, though, that, that this would go away, that it would disappear, that it would shrink, that she wouldn't even need surgery. And so we prayed for, for weeks. There was a lot of prayer meetings happening at that time in, in Hope's history, and, and uh, we were praying uh, weekly. There are actually churches outside the Twin Cities that, that knew her, and knew her family, and they were praying as well. They were, they were joining us in prayer. And uh, the rest of the story actually was recounted by, uh, by Allie's mom. Uh, we heard about this later, is that what happened at the hospital, a few of us went in to pray for her. She, wanted, she had to go in for surgery. She, she still had the, the lump. You actually see the lump on her throat if you, look, if you look close enough. They took a biopsy. There's clearly cancer there. And uh, we prayed for her again, and she went in, and we were back at the Hope office at that time. And what happened next is uh, apparently... Allie's mom was in the waiting room for a long time. Uh, the, the surgery, it's supposed to be a quick surgery. She was in the, in the waiting room for about 45 minutes longer than it, it should have taken. The surgeon comes out and <laughs> says, first words out of his mouth are, we have a problem. The words you don't want to hear when, when, uh, when your daughter is in, is having surgery for, to remove cancer on her, on her thyroid. He says the next words, we can't find any cancer. It's gone. Praise God. And it was there. You could clearly see the lump on her throat. Again, the biopsy. They, they told her, you know, we still took a part of the thyroid out because we know it was there. We're going to send it down to Mayo to have them do some more cross-sections on it and look. And the cancer's got to be there. We just don't know what happened. So it turned out it wasn't a problem at all. Right? <laughs> it, was, it was a reason to praise God. It was an answer to prayer. And uh, so... Long story short, there are more details to that. Actually, there was one of the other churches that I believe was in Illinois, another one of these churches that were praying. Allie's mom called, I think it was Allie's mom that called them. Before she even told them anything about God's miracle of healing, they said, the cancer's gone, isn't it? 
God, God just revealed to them uh, that, that, they, that he was answering their prayers as well. God, God is moving. He has moved in this church body. He's done many more things, too. I wish I could just share, you know, ten more stories here. This building is an answer to prayer. Uh, but I wish I could just share ten more stories of what God has done in the past through prayer at this church. Our hope is not in physical healing, but it accompanies the, the, the preaching of the gospel. All throughout the Bible, signs and wonders accompany the preaching of the gospel uh, to, to testify and point to the great work of, of, uh, of Jesus Christ, what he accomplished for us on the cross for salvation from sins. So, but anyway, I got to move into announcement mode here. I'm actually not preaching on prayer today, so I got I to gotta, I gotta move on. But um, 24-hour prayer. Uh, some, of you, some of you have not heard of this. We've done this for the past, I think, three or four years. We, we, uh, we just want to take 24 hours and set, them, set it aside and pray. We want every, every minute of that 24-hour period covered in prayer. Uh, the leaders of this church have, have uh, printed out, have prayed and, and printed out a, I think I have it here somewhere, there it is, printed out a, a list of ways we feel led to pray, scripture, uh, prayer, uh, points, directed prayers we can pray through this year. You can sign out here, there's a, there's a huge board that uh, has 15 minute time slots for this 24 hour period uh, sectioned off. So you can sign your name by it, basically saying I'm committed to pray for, the, for these 15 minutes or more. Some people have already signed up for, for a good hour. So Steve Treichler is doing a prayer drive at 3 a.m. Uh, 3 to 4 a.m. usually comes here and if people want to join him, you can hop in his, his, big, uh, his big truck and, and drive around the city and pray. But um, Pick up one of these, and there's a spot on the bottom for you to, to write, your, write your time you're praying so you don't forget. The building, this sanctuary is going to be open for the entire 24-hour period. If you want to come here, there's going to be PowerPoint slides uh, shifting through these prayer requests. Come and just and pray with other people. Pray by yourself here. Uh, or you can just pray wherever you're at, too. And then the final hour, Saturday night, May 6, 6 to 7 p.m., which is the last hour. It's going to be 7 p.m. to 7 p.m. 6 to 7 p.m. Saturday night, we usually, usually meet here. A bunch of people pray and worship God together to finish out this, uh, this prayer and fasting time. The fasting from food or media is optional. Uh, I know some of you can't fast from food, but if you want to just uh, not eat or, or not watch TV or whatever, we, we encourage you to do that as kind of a help to prayer um, for, that, for that time. So a bunch of people out there, just look for people that know what they're doing out there after the service. They'll help you sign up for this and just to encourage you, again, to, to pr- God, God is a big God. We, we worship the only God, the one God, and he is able to do these things and greater things. In, in our midst. We have a lot going on at Hope this next year we want to pray for, so I um, encourage you to, to sign up wherever you're at in your prayer life. Uh, prayer is just talking to God, and I uh, just encourage you to sign up and, and uh, join us in prayer for these, uh, these 24 hours coming up this Friday. Okay. Transition. We're still in our John series today. Uh, we're going to look at, we're, we're in a new chapter, John 4, which is a chapter of Jesus' dialogue with a Samaritan woman. Just a couple thoughts on the sermon series title before we begin. I love this title. Meeting Jesus Christ through his signs and ministry. Just an encouragement to you guys when you read through your Gospels. That's that's the issue. That's the question that they're addressing. Who is Jesus? So in other words, don't, don't get lost in the details. The details are important. But at the end of the day, when you read your Gospels, that's what they're all about. This person of Jesus Christ. Who is he? What's he doing? What's he saying? What, what are the ramifications for his, for his ministry and his words and, his, and what he's doing? Essentially, that's all I want to do today. We're going to read uh, through the first 26 verses of this chapter. And in uh, the next two weeks, Steve and Cor are going to finish up this chapter. But essentially, that's all I want to do. I want to read a section of the, of the text 
and I want to just stop, make a couple comments along the way, and just, and just talk about who is Jesus. Enjoy Jesus with you today. I want to encourage you to enjoy him uh, because these words are um, hugely significant and applicable to, to us today, just as they were for the Samaritan woman. Okay, open your Bibles uh, if you have them, or they're, in the, they're, they're on the sermon insert in very small, eight-point, uh, aerial, condensed, narrow, super thin fonts. So if you can read that, you can follow along in that too. Actually, I have some art I wanted to show you first. These are some, just some ways that people in the past have conceptualized uh, Jesus talking to the Samaritan woman at the well. This is kind of neat because in the top corner, you see the disciples. They're, they're wondering what in the world Jesus is doing. Talking to a Samaritan woman like that. So I kind of like that one. The next one. This is one we use for our soul well. Uh, we, have soul, we worship uh, once a month on Friday nights. Uh, and um, we did it last Friday night, actually. This is one of the pieces of art we use to just kind of embody this idea of Jesus being our, our well and it being well with our soul that uh, we have Jesus Christ. Uh, next one. I thought this one is interesting, too, because she's actually walking away from Jesus, and so it's kind of an interesting picture you get of the woman responding to Jesus. But um, So anyway, for you, all you visual learners out there, um, there you go. I'm, I'm one of them, so... Okay, to begin, let's uh, read uh, verses 1 to 9 of chapter 4. And they say this. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. After he had passed through Samaria, and he had come to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, which is the same thing as saying it was about noon, 12 noon. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, we'll stop there for a minute. Uh, first of all, I just have a map here just to get, get, get your bearings. Um, and I bought a new laser pointer just for this, so I'm going to use it out. Oh, yeah. Yep. Okay. So I just, I was using it earlier, and it looked like there was some fuzz around it, so I don't know if it was that good. Okay, anyway. Um, I have, okay, this is a map of, of Palestine. You see Judea down here. These two circles, this is Jerusalem. And this is, this is uh, the town Sicker. You can actually see it there underneath that red circle. Samaria. These are provinces, Judea, Samaria, and Galilee. So Jesus uh, was walking from Jerusalem. He's in Jerusalem still at this point. He's walking north to Galilee. And note that he has to walk through Samaria to, to get to Galilee. So, and then Jacob's well, which we'll talk about in a minute, is right in this area. This is Mount Gerizim right here, which we'll talk about too in just a second. But Okay. So... Uh, now, just a quick history of who the Samaritans are. Uh, for those of you who don't, especially, if, I guess if you do know, I just want to refresh you. But the Samaritans uh, now are, this, this is drawing from the Old Testament. Actually, before I even say that, John's parenthetical is really all you need here. I'll, I'll explain more in a minute. But John's parenthetical, Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews don't hang out with Samaritans. Okay, that's, that's the big issue here. But in the Old Testament, 
722 BC, the Assyrians sacked, defeated, really destroyed the northern kingdom of Israel. In the Old Testament, uh, at a certain time, the, the kingdom of Israel, Israel was divided into two kingdoms. The southern kingdom was called Judah. And that northern kingdom was in great sin. God brought the, the Assyrians to, to wipe them out uh, as, as a result of their sin, to sack them, really. And what Assyria would do, though, was not when they, when they defeated a people, they would not just destroy them, kill them, but they would assimilate them into, into their own people group. They would intermarry with them. And so essentially uh, just annihilating their own cultural identity. And so after, after just a few generations, there'd really be no such thing as, as Israel or, or as a Jew in that, in that part of what, it, what, uh, what Israel was during that day. So this ended up creating then as the centuries, the decades and centuries progressed, a lot of animosity between Jews and Samaritans because the Jews then, the existing Jews in Judah, would look to Samaria and say, well, they're basically Gentiles. They're half-breeds at best. They're kind of Jew, but they're, they're kind of Gentile now too. And, uh, and so there's a lot of animosity, a lot of tension between the two. On top of that, at, uh, at some point between, uh, between, when they, between 722 and, and the time of Christ, they built their own temple, which is a no-no if you want to make friends with a Jew of the first century, don't build, don't build a temple, all right, another temple. So, but they did, and on top of that, they only held to a certain part of the Bible as authoritative, only the first five books of the Bible. So a lot of religious animosity, too, between, again, Jews and, and Samaritans. On top of that, there's also this fact that in the Old Testament, God called Israel to separate themselves from other peoples for holiness and purity purposes. And it falls outside the scope of the sermon to really go into the whys of that. Uh, but again, the important thing is John's parenthetical. If all that's over your head, that's fine. Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jews did not hang out with Samaritans. So in this first chunk of John 4, the, bi- the big takeaway is this. But Jesus is hanging out with a Samaritan. Something new is going on here. A new thing is happening. A Jew, and this is not any Jew, this is the word of God. God, in the, God incarnate, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He is going, not only just walking by a Jew, but sitting, or walking by a Samaritan, a non-Jew, but sitting down with her, talking to her and asking her for a drink. This is radical, radical stuff. Another thing that's new here is that the word of God, the word of God is going to non-Jews. And we'll talk about this more. I'm kind of giving you a little a little. Uh, foretaste of what we're going to talk about more as, as the weeks go on here in John. But the word of God now, salvation is from the Jews, as we read here in John 4. But now the word of God, he's kind of, Jesus is kind of embodying this idea of the word of God going to all peoples. Now half Jews, Gentiles as well, full, full-blown Gentiles uh, after that. And so something new is happening here with Jesus' ministry. Something very exciting. Something that has ramifications for all of us. Most people in here, probably not all, but most are, are not Jewish. And the word of God has come to us. A couple, couple of weeks ago, Cor uh, preached through John 3. I think twice, didn't you, Cor? Cor, are you here? Yes, twice. I got credit for that, for preaching one of those last week, but I didn't preach one. So I'll give you the credit now. So you preached twice. So and one thing he said is that when you read through John 3 and 4, if you have them both in front of you, one great exercise to do is compare these two conversations that Jesus has. One with Nicodemus, a religious elite, intellectual elite of the day. And one with this unnamed Samaritan, half, half-breed woman. Okay, big difference on the social spectrum here. One is top of the totem pole, intellectually, socially, religiously. One is at the very bottom. Again, unnamed, this unnamed woman of Samaria. 
And if you actually, it's really a great exercise to note that also that, as we'll notice in a couple weeks, when we, when we come back to seeing what the Samaritan woman's response was to Jesus in her own village, is that the, the Samaritan woman actually responds positively to Jesus' words, and we're kind of left wondering what, what happened with Nicodemus. At least, at least at this point, we don't know. The, the, the religious elite who came at night, we don't really know how he responded. But the Samaritan woman does respond positively. Many people come to, come to believe through her testimony and through Jesus' testimony as well uh, as he goes to that village to spend a few days. So I think, um, again, one big takeaway is that Jesus is up to something new here. And uh, I think another one before we go on is I want to encourage you all to see the Samaritan woman as a picture of us as we read through this passage. Some of you can relate a lot more to the Samaritan woman than others, but I think uh, first and foremost, the Samaritan woman is a picture of us, an unnamed uh, person, uh, a sinner, as we'll see in a minute, a uh, person in, in her sin, in his sin, uh, a person that uh, may feel very unimportant, uh, unvalued, unnamed, a face in a crowd, and again, uh, those of you who especially feel that way today, a person really in sin, maybe you feel like God's forgiveness is not for you, I want to encourage you to see, oh, this is good news too, that the word of God is going towards you. God is offering you, as we'll see in a minute, living water, even in spite of your sin. He, you are valuable to God. And this is a great passage that, that, uh, that embodies this. And we'll talk about this more in a minute here. But the fact that God has moved towards us in Christ, moved towards the Samaritan woman, and now he's moving towards us, is the, the best, like Tim said just a minute ago, the best news in the world you could ever want is the gospel. So, let's move on. Let's read uh, 4, 10 to 14 now. Follow along, this will be on screen as well. What happens next in this dialogue? Uh, verse 10 says this. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank for it in himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty forever. That construction in the Greek is emphatic. So it's like an explanation point, exclamation point, exclamation point after that. You will never be thirsty again, ever. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Okay, I love this. This is classic Jesus. Uh, for those of you maybe who have read, read a lot of Jesus, a lot of, a lot of the Gospels before, is he takes something physical. It's like, probably no Dixie cups back then. But he's, he's around, he, he, he takes something physical like water, he sits down by a well. He asks this woman for a drink. And then he proceeds to tell her about living water. Spiritual living water. He takes something physical and points to a greater spiritual reality with it. It's awesome. We'll see how, we'll see how awesome this is more here in a minute. He does this with bread too, actually. He takes around the context of bread in the Gospels. He talks about how he's the bread of life. So, okay. Now, Jacob's well, um, just so you guys know what this is, Jacob's well, when, when the Samaritan woman talks about Jacob's well, she's, he, uh, she's referring to Jacob, one of the patriarchs in the book of Genesis, uh, who built a well that Israel drank from for centuries onward. So again, let's read verse 12 with me. She says, are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and as did his livestock. 
So the implied answer to the Samaritan's woman, the, the Samaritan woman's question here is, yes, I'm way greater. For he gave you a well that you drank from, and it's a great well, right? Because this happened thousands of years ago, and it's still producing water. It's a great well. His sons drank from it. His livestock drank from it. But I'm even greater because when people drank from that well, they were thirsty two hours later. They had to drink from it again and again and again and again. But now I'm offering you water that you drink of it once. You will be quenched forever. That's good water. That's Jesus' aid right there. That's like the best Gatorade you could ever have. Um, Okay, we'll come back to that in a minute. But I just actually want to go over some more Old Testament imagery here that he's, that, he's, that he's pulling from. Jeremiah 2.13, that he's fulfilling, actually. Jeremiah 2.13 says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the, this is God speaking, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So again, just this idea that they're trying to, trying to create this cistern to hold water, and, and it can't. They're, they're, they're forsaking the fountain of living waters and trying to make this, these cisterns for themselves to hold, to hold this water, and they can't. Psalm 36, 8-9, They feast in the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. Isaiah 55. Oh, this is great. This is actually out in our foyer area. Come, everyone, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Well, Jesus, Jesus is fulfilling a couple things, a couple things from these passages. First, Jesus is God. First of all, it's, that's big. He's saying, because the fountain of life is God in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, the, the, the water I offer you is fulfilling this idea of God being God being the, the source of the living water in the Old Testament. So this is, a, this is a passage of Jesus' deity in one sense. But then there's also this expectation in the prophets that a day was coming where we could be satisfied fully. We could come to the fountains and buy and eat without money. It's free. It's a free gift of God, like Jesus says in, uh, in, in, in the early verses of John 4 here. It's a free gift. We can come and partake. Jesus Christ fulfills that expectation that that was spoken through the prophets in the Old Testament as well. Now, there's a couple questions this text, I think, raises for us at this point. I just want to stop and ask a couple questions that, uh, that I think arise now. First is, what are you quenching your thirst with? What are you using to quench your thirst? For me, I'm, I'm, uh, it's my house. I'm, I'm a part of the Buy a South Minneapolis home and a dumpy South Minneapolis home and fix-it-up club. Card-carrying member. Of, uh, of that club, and it's, it was pretty bad. It's good now. It's a lot better. You guys should come back and see. It's pretty good. Um, actually, it needs a lot more work. But every time I work on it, and I, I spend a lot of Saturdays uh, on, on, on my house, every time I work on it, I get jazzed the next day. Like, Sunday's great, because I'm like, cool. This look, looks a lot better. You know, and you can remember that it was dumpy before, so you kind of remember how bad it looked before. But then the next day, I, re- I realized the next Saturday, the next Saturday I want, I want more. I want to put more into the house. It doesn't satisfy me eternally. It doesn't last because I always want to do more and more to it. And so I've had, I've had to check myself constantly every week that this is not my life. This is not, this is not giving me lasting joy. Jesus does. And so I have to kind of keep pointing myself back to the, the fountain of living waters, the thing that, that really satisfies me. And with you guys, I know a lot of you don't have houses um, now, so you don't know what I'm talking about really. But, um, but it could be 
Relationships, it could be something you're really, you're really, you're really getting life out of a relationship. It could be a job, money, sports. And uh, man, whether, I know we say this a lot from, this, uh, from the pulpit here, but if you heard this a hundred times, or if you heard it once, hear it again. These things will never satisfy you. The Bible says these things will never, like physical water, when you need it two hours later or the next morning, these things will never satisfy you. But Jesus offers water that will, you drink it once, and it will satisfy you in a spiritual sense forever. Big difference. Big difference. I love this imagery too, because think about, think about the time you've been, the thirstiest you've ever been, where you know how your, your lips kind of quiver and all you can think about is water, or, or uh, coffee, or Coke, or whatever quenches your thirst. Uh, all you can think about is just some, some, quenching your thirst. You just want something cold, and, and, then, you fi- and then, then you finally get it. And it's like, oh my goodness. It's like, you know, your knees buckle and you're like, oh my gosh. This is like, this is, you're just, you just soak it up. You barely breathe because you're just, you're just throwing down this water so quick. That's the imagery Jesus gives us here in John 4. He is that, he is that, that satisfying to you and more because he's more than physical water. He's living water. That's how much Jesus Christ satisfies you. That's awesome imagery that we're getting, that we're getting from John 4 here. Uh, okay, that, well, that was one question. What are you quenching your thirst with? The second one is related. Do you want water that will satisfy you forever? Do you want this? Like Jesus says, do you, do you believe the gift of God? I love when Jesus says that. He, he just he responds with, with a question that, okay, I understand that, but then he says, but do you believe it? Do you really want it? Just with going back to this relationship between the physical and the spiritual as well, uh, next, time, next time you're thirsty, even when you're down with the connection, uh, getting a... Getting, uh, what do they have down there? Lemonade, uh, water, or whatever. And you're holding that cup, or, or whatever you're doing. If, if you're running and you're drinking Gatorade or, or water or something, or again, whatever, whatever quenches your thirst. When you're holding that, when you're holding that liquid, let it be a reminder of two things. First of all, this will not satisfy me for a long time. I'll need this again in two hours, or three hours, or whatever. But then let it be a reminder of a second thing, because again, this is what Jesus is doing. He's using a physical thing to point to a spiritual reality. Let it be a reminder that Jesus is my milk, my water, my Mountain Dew. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, okay. My Diet Coke. Amen. Okay. Yeah. Angela, yes. Right on. How many do you drink a day? A lot. Okay. Is Phil here too? Phil and Angela, man. It's like out of control. So, okay. <laughs> All right, let's look at one more way this plays out in, in the Bible. This is actually, this is really exciting. I love this. Uh, this is back in Exodus 17, 3 and 6. Uh, it says this, But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt? Okay, top, top ten things not to say to God if you're Israel. <laughs> Why do you take me out of Egypt? Or, what's worse, take us back to Egypt. That's a no-no. Don't say that. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Then a few verses later, God says this, I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. Nehemiah recounts this in Nehemiah, 5, or Nehemiah 9. You gave me the bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water from them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go and to possess the land that you had sworn them. So, what does this have to do with Jesus? According to Paul, 
It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Even here in the Old Testament. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, referring to Israel. And all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Whoa. The rock was Christ that they drank from. So again, he's making, this, he's making this connection between this physical provision, great miraculous physical provision that God provided for Israel in the Old Testament with this spiritual provision now in the New Testament, which is Jesus Christ. The rock was Christ because it pointed to a greater spiritual reality. God, in the same way that God poured out water from the rock at Horeb, now does he even in an even better sense pour out water from us through, through Jesus Christ and quenches our thirst. That's awesome. Okay. So again, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament's expectations for thirst quenching. Okay, let's move on. Uh, read, uh, let's read 4, 15 to 18. It says this. What happens after this? After Jesus says, uh, I have this water to give you that you'll never uh, be thirsty again after you drink it. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one who you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, what's going on here now? Is Jesus switching subjects? I mean, she kind of, she's kind of asking for this water, and then he, she said, he says, Go call your husband. He's not switching subjects at all. This is a really cool part of this passage. It's actually the key. If you don't get anything from this passage, get, get, get this transition here. Uh, because the idea, he's pointing out the idea that live, uh, at this point, the idea of living water is somewhat ambiguous. Okay, Jesus offers this water. It will, it will quench you forever, but what exactly is the water? And how does it quench me? If it's not physical, how, do, how does it quench me spiritually? So let, let's just review here. Jesus says, I offer you this living water that will, that will satisfy you forever. And this woman says, look what she says here, this is, this is huge. Let's read verse 15 again. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water again. Where's the well, she's saying. I don't want to have to come back to, I don't want to have to come back to this well again and draw water. See, she's still operating in the physical realm. She's still like, well, wh- wh- if this isn't the well, where's that well? So I can go draw water from it. She doesn't get it. Kind of like the disciples a lot, if you, if you ever read uh, <laughs> okay, we'll never. Yeah, yeah, I guess it is. Well, in, in John 11, where, where Lazarus is, uh, is he, he has died, and Jesus says something like, uh, well, our friend Lazarus has, has fallen asleep. I need to, go to, need to go to wake him up. And the disciples are, are, are like, uh, well, if he, if he sleeps, he'll, he'll get better. And, you know, you can just see Jesus go, oh. You know, <laughs> and then it says after that, and then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. You know, it's, it's kind of like, <laughs> you can see that disciples just kind of shut, I told you, you know, kind of funny. It's just kind of a funny exchange. But, but anyway, she doesn't get it here. She's still operating in the physical realm. Where's the well? She doesn't get it that Jesus is talking about something spiritual here. So Jesus helps her make the connection. He says, go call your husband. Oh, I have five husbands. And then you've got to wonder if there's a oh there. Oh. Jesus is revealing to this woman that the water he offers quenches her sin, her sin problem. It addresses her sin problem. This is huge here. 
He, he reveals to her that she's a sinner, that she has five husbands, that she's in need of a spiritual drink that will somehow satisfy this problem. This makes perfect sense because in John 121, uh, I'm sorry, John 129, John the Baptist says this. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is all about dealing with the sin issue. That's his mission. It says in Hebrews that Jesus came once to deal with sin, and he's coming again to save those who eagerly wait for him. He's coming to deal with sin. We'll see later in the Gospel of John with his passion how dealing with sin actually happens. And actually, just to, just to kind of foreshadow that now, the question then is, how does Jesus satisfy spiritual thirst? Huge question here. How does Jesus Christ satisfy? If that's what he's saying, if I have water to give you that will satisfy your sin, address your sin problem, how does he do it? At the cross. At the cross, he satisfies our spiritual thirst for deliverance from sin. Look what Paul, Paul says. And we can have access to God through Christ forever. This is awesome news that we can have a relationship with God because of what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross. Colossians 2.13, when you are dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. How? Having canceled the written code with its regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us, he took them away, nailing them to the cross. Someone believes in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. Their sins are taken away laid upon Jesus Christ, and we are made righteous before God. That is, that is, that is a, a means for praise right there. That is good news. Talk about quenching your, your thirst for, for significance, for, for, uh, for deliverance from, uh, from sin, from the guilt and shame associated with that sin. With, with that sin. So I think, so anyway, John 4 here looks ahead to the cross. And so we'll, again, we'll come there and I don't know how long it'll take us to get to the end of John, but three years or whatever. We'll, we'll, we'll come there and we'll talk about how this, really, how this really happens all the more. But it's looking ahead. Jesus is embodying this idea of, 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 of atoning for sin, of taking care of our sin, which happens at the cross. So it's all has to do with forgiveness of sins. Every individual's greatest need and greatest thirsts, mine, all of yours, is deliverance from sin and being restored to a right relationship with God. So another question, are you thirsty for forgiveness of sins and for deliverance from guilt and shame and bondage? One thing Jesus does here, one thing we like to say often here at Hope is that the most graceful thing that we can say to you is how much of a sinner you are. Because if you know that, this is what Jesus does too. He exposes this woman's sin because she doesn't see it. She's like, where's the, where's the, where's, where's the well? Where's the physical water? He exposes her sin. No, no, no. You need this. If you know you're a sinner, you can come to the cross. And if you, if you don't know you're sick, you'll never go to the doctor. Jesus uses that metaphor elsewhere in the Gospels. Jesus Christ takes away our sins. So, just a quick summary before I move on. Jesus offers us living water. That living water quenches our, all of our needs for deliverance from sin and shame and guilt and bondage. The prison that we're in through sin. All right, 4, 19 to 26. Let's finish this up. Jesus says, I'm sorry, the woman says first. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Okay, we're getting there. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem was the place where people ought to worship. 
Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, so Jesus is continuing to disclose to this woman more about who he is. Remember how we began. Who is Jesus Christ? According to John 4, 1 to 26. And he does this in a slightly different way, but a related way here. Worship, he's saying here, worship now is no longer, ge- no longer geographical. He's saying there's a temple in Samaria, that, you know that false temple we were talking about that they built, the Samaritans built. Not only was that never a legitimate temple, legitimate dwelling place of God, not only will, will you people never wor- not worship there, but even in Jerusalem, which was and even is in some sense still there, a le- the, the legitimate dwelling place of God, even there you will not worship God. Even Jer- Jerusalem is growing obsolete. There's nothing special about it anymore. I am the new temple, as we've already talked about in, the, in, this, in, in John. And in verses, uh, chapters 1 and 2 talk about this. He's the new tabernacle. He's the new dwelling place of God. He's the new temple. His body is the temple. He is the new mediator between God and man, and it's in him we worship. So huge ramifications here. Worship is not time-centered or building-centered. Worship's not in a song, not just in a song, or a place or a time. It's always through Jesus Christ in everything we do. These are the, and this is the challenge. These are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. So a huge question here. Is the extent of your spirituality Sunday morning? Is this it? Then you're, just, you're missing out big time on what it means to worship God. And the huge challenge is you're not, a, you're not the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. Huge, huge challenge here this morning for us. We say often that Sunday mornings are great for a lot of things, but they're just hors d'oeuvres for the rest of the week. They're just hors d'oeuvres uh, to, uh, to be worshiping God in everything you do. So, is the extent of your spirituality Sunday morning, or are you people of thanksgiving constantly? Are you working to God's glory at your jobs, letting your work ethic glorify God? Are you praying continually throughout the day, meditating on his word, loving others to God's glory, asking God for wisdom continually, striving to battle sin and the power of the Holy Spirit? That's worshiping God. Uh, offering your bodies as living sacrifices. That's your spiritual act of worship. Are you, a kind, are you the kind of worshiper the Father seeks? Now, that spirit and truth clause, which can be a little hard to understand. Again, Jesus is just saying, now you worship God through me. Later in John 14, 6, he says, I am the truth. I am the truth. So here he's saying, worshiping in spirit and truth is worshiping through Jesus, period. Worship through Jesus Christ in the Holy Spirit. That can happen anywhere. Not a, again, not a building, not a time but it happens through Jesus Christ. The only way to access God, the only way, is through Jesus Christ. Just a couple of things. Um, this is really like, there's really three sermons in this text, so I, I felt like I had to kind of just plow through it. But um, So just a couple of things uh, to review. 
Who is Jesus Christ according to John 4? Just here are a few things. He is the word of God who goes forth to all people, even us, sinners, unnamed Samaritan women, unimportant to the world, but important to God. The word of God has come to us and offered us living water. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament's forward-looking narratives and prophecies concerning living water. He's the fulfillment of Jacob, the fulfillment of the, the rock at Horeb. He is the living water that wells up to eternal life, quenching our spiritual thirst for salvation from sin. He knows all things about us. He is our salvation, the free gift of God. And he is the one in whom we worship God, the truth. He is the truth, the giver of the Spirit. So again, there's an invitation here, I think, in this text to all of us. Is the question is, are we thirsty today for Jesus Christ? We all are, I think, in one sense, whether we realize it or not. The Samaritan woman didn't realize it. She was thirsty uh, for spiritual things, so Jesus revealed it to her. But we all are thirsty. Are you thirsty for Jesus Christ and for deliverance from sin today? If you're a Christian here, are you still thirsty? Are you continuing in your thirst? If you're not a Christian, are you thir- do, you want, do you want to be quenched today for the first time? I want to read a couple passages from Revelation to close. Uh, and, and these are Jesus' words at the end of the book. So not only do they embody the, the, the quenching that we can have now, but I think they also look forward to the final quenching from thirst that we will have. All of his people, all of God's people, all Christians will have on, on that great and glorious day of God's return in Jesus Christ. Listen to these great words. It says, he said to me, Jesus' words, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To, to him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost Isaiah 55 again. From the spring of the water of life. Revelation 22, 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. And let him who hears say, come. Whoever is thirsty, let him come. Whoever wishes, let him take the free gift of the water of life. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your grace that is offered us, extended to us in Christ, that we can have deliverance from sin, quenching from the need that we have uh, for deliverance from sin and guilt and shame and bondage. God, we praise you, worship you today. God, I ask you that uh, you would just move on our lives and, and make us, make it, remind us that we are thirsty if we don't feel thirsty. Quench our need today, God, for, for, uh, for deliverance from this sin. We praise you that, that you are the gift of God, Jesus. And, um, We ask this all, God, in in your name today. Amen.